Good morning, and welcome to Simply Economics. It's Thursday, February 1st. On today's show, we discuss the need for macroeconomic and fiscal reforms to achieve developed country status by 2047. The One Nation, One Election panel is also considering the macroeconomic impact of synchronizing all polls. Plus, we explore the influence of central banks and sovereign wealth funds on the Hang Seng Index, ASX 200, and Nikkei 225. This coverage and more, up next. I'm David, and you're listening to Simply Economics. We start off with an overview of the country's significant progress in terms of macroeconomic stability, a robust financial sector, and digital infrastructure. Despite the health of the financial sector, after a decade of distressed balance sheets of corporates, banks, and non-banking financial companies, challenges like the fiscal deficit and government debt still need to be addressed. Here to delve deeper into this is our correspondent from Simply Economics. Indeed, David. The fiscal deficit reached an unprecedented 13.2% of GDP in 2020-21, and outstanding government liabilities peaked at 90%. Since then, there's been a concerted effort by the government to reduce both deficit and debt. The central government fiscal deficit is budgeted to be reduced to 5.9% in 2023-24, and by 2025-26, it's targeted to be 4.5%. But what about the target set by the 14th Finance Commission? Is it feasible to achieve the aggregate fiscal deficit of 6% of GDP and the debt target of 59% of GDP? Unfortunately, those targets are no longer within the realm of feasibility. The IMF has projected that in the worst-case scenario, if the fiscal slippages due to various shocks seen during 2020-20 materialize, the government debt could exceed 100% of GDP. While the probability of such a large slippage is not very high, It underlines the importance of reaching the medium-term fiscal deficit target of 7% of GDP by 2025 to 26. What would be the implications of achieving these targets? Achieving these targets would reduce the debt servicing burden, which currently is equivalent to one-third of the tax revenue. This would create more fiscal space for spending on infrastructure, health, and climate change mitigation and adaptation. It's critical to create an enabling environment by crowding in private investment. So, what are the steps that need to be taken to ensure fiscal sustainability? There are several steps that can be taken. First, it's important to design new fiscal rules based on the lessons from past experiences. Second, a more scientific public finance management system is needed to ensure timely and transparent budget implementation. Third, an independent institution like the Fiscal Council could be created to evaluate the realism of the budget forecasts and monitor budget implementation issues. Lastly, a medium-term plan for fiscal consolidation is important to protect more productive spending on physical infrastructure and human capital. What about the tax side of things? With the firming up of the technology platform, compliance with GST has shown steady improvement. It's time for second-generation reforms, like including petroleum products and electricity in the tax base, phasing out many items in the exempted list, and simplifying the tax by reducing the number of rates. The application of modern technology has facilitated targeted scrutiny of taxpayers, which should help in improving voluntary compliance with the tax. And what about the role of the state in all of this? 
the role of the state needs to be revisited. It's important to aggressively privatize all commercial enterprises run by the government and use the proceeds either to retire debt or to make the much-needed spending on public infrastructure. Thanks to Simply Economics correspondent Celeste for that insightful analysis on the country's fiscal situation. Now let's shift our focus to the political arena, where the high-level committee on One Nation, One Election, led by former President Ram Nath Kovind, is currently discussing the potential implications of holding simultaneous elections on various factors, including GDP growth, fiscal deficits, crime rates, and education outcomes. Here to delve deeper into this is our correspondent, Michael. Can you tell us more about the committee's discussions? Certainly, David. The committee members were recently presented with a draft research paper that examined the macroeconomic impact of holding elections to panchayats, municipalities, state assemblies, and the Lok Sabha simultaneously. The paper covers a range of aspects, including the effect of simultaneous elections on education, GDP growth, and investment. The committee also discussed potential consequences on crime outcomes. Given that a significant portion of security forces is deployed to ensure smooth conduct of elections. What are the arguments in favor of simultaneous elections? Those in favor of simultaneous elections argue that developmental work is often disrupted due to the implementation of the model code of conduct and government staff being posted for election duty. The union government, led by the BJP at the center, has often advocated for simultaneous elections on the ground that the frequent implementation of the model code of conduct disrupts governance, and holding all elections once every five years would amount to huge savings for the exchequer. What is the model code of conduct, and how does it disrupt governance? The model code of conduct contains general precepts for model behavior during elections conducted by the Election Commission. It forbids the use of official machinery and personnel for the political gains of the party in power. The bureaucracy or any public servant is also required to not engage or appear to engage in an activity that could work to the advantage of the party in power. Since the model code of conduct is only a moral code and lacks any statutory backing, its frequent implementation is seen as a disruption to governance. What are the next steps for the committee? The committee is scheduled to continue its discussion on the economic impact of multiple elections in its upcoming consultations. Representatives from the Confederation of Indian Industry and the Associated Chambers of Commerce and Industry of India, two prominent industry bodies, are expected to deliver presentations on the potential savings for corporates if elections were held once every five years. The committee will also discuss how corporate donations might differ if all polls were consolidated into a single cycle every five years. What has been the Election Commission's stance on simultaneous elections? The Election Commission has never opposed the idea of simultaneous elections in its submissions to the Union Law Ministry, Law Commission, and even the Parliamentary Standing Committee. However, it has flagged logistical challenges pertaining to their conduct and what it would need to do in advance to prepare for such a task. The Commission has also staunchly defended the model code of conduct, describing it as a vital instrumentality in providing a level playing field to everyone. Thanks for that insightful report, Michael. Now shifting our focus to the global markets, on Wednesday, the Hang Seng Index led the Nikkei 225 and the ASX 200 into positive territory, 
fueled by U.S. inflation figures and China's central bank moves. However, modest overnight gains from the U.S. signal caution for Thursday, with economic indicators from Japan and Australia in focus. Here to discuss this further is our correspondent from Simply Economics. Indeed, David. U.S. overnight economic indicators from Tuesday set the tone for the Wednesday Asian session. Softer-than-expected U.S. consumer price inflation figures raised bets on the Fed ending its rate hike cycle. This led to a rally in the NASDAQ Composite Index, with the Dow and S&P 500 also ending the day up. And how did the Asian economic calendar influence the markets? Economic indicators from Japan didn't spook investors, with a more marked economic contraction than expected, fueling bets on the Bank of Japan keeping monetary policy ultra-loose. Meanwhile, better-than-expected retail sales and industrial production numbers from China suggested Beijing's stimulus measures were taking effect, supporting the appetite for riskier assets. What about the U.S. retail sales? How did they impact the markets? U.S. retail sales fell less than expected, while producer prices signaled easing demand-driven inflationary pressures. This supports the idea of the Fed ending its rate hike cycle amid falling inflationary pressures, increasing the chance of an H1 2024 Fed rate cut. This led to a positive session for the U.S. equity markets on Wednesday. What should we expect for the Thursday session? The modest U.S. equity market gains may set a cautious tone for the Asian session. However, the Asian economic calendar warrants consideration. Machinery orders from Japan beat forecasts, suggesting a possibly improving demand environment. However, trade data sent mixed signals. For the ASX 200, Australian employment figures could influence sentiment toward RBA monetary policy. The futures market signaled a negative start to the Thursday session. How did the ASX 200, Hang Seng Index, and the Nikkei 225 perform on Wednesday? The ASX 200 rose by 1.42% on Wednesday, with tech rallying on the overnight slide in yields. Mining stocks also contributed to the gains. However, oil stocks had a negative session. The Hang Seng Index rallied 3.92% on Wednesday, with hopes of improved U.S.-China relations and central bank policy moves contributing to the session gains. The Nikkei 225 ended Wednesday up 2.52%. That was Bella, our Simply Economics correspondent, giving us an insightful overview of the Asian markets. Speaking of global financial trends, let's turn our attention to sovereign wealth funds, or SWFs. Bloomberg recently reported that SWFs are now part of a group of investors telling financial managers to release capital from older investment funds before committing to future fundraisers. Here to discuss this further is Abby, another correspondent for Simply Economics. Abby, can you tell us more about the role of SWFs in the global economy? Certainly, David. SWFs typically amass a wealth of capital, which can be used to diversify a country's sectoral focus to protect and grow its economy. For instance, Middle East SWFs have been using wealth accumulated through oil and gas exports to build their renewable energy markets. In emerging markets, foreign SWFs can provide crucial infrastructure projects to help drive forward an economy and open opportunities that may not be otherwise possible. Interesting. Can you tell us about some of the most high-profile SWFs at present? Sure, one of the most high-profile SWFs at present is Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, or PIF, which oversees assets worth nearly $800 billion. However, the largest UF is the Norway government pension fund Global, 
which holds total assets of almost $1.5 trillion. It is followed by the China Investment Corporation with $1.2 trillion and State Administration of Foreign Exchange Investment Company, the Hong Kong branch of the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund, with just over $1 trillion. How have SEPUFs evolved since the 2008 financial crisis? SWFs have grown from relative obscurity to emerge as true titans of global finance since the 2008 financial crisis. They have played a crucial role in stabilizing banks during the crisis and shaping the future of entire industries. With trillions under management, SWFs such as China's CIC or Norway's oil fund could soon exert more influence than many nations. What impact do SWFs have on businesses? In the business world, SWF investments are now a regular occurrence rather than a rarity. Their deep pockets and long-term horizons make them valued partners. However, some economic observers also see potential risks if SBUFs come to dominate certain sectors or pursue non-commercial goals. That's certainly something to watch. Thanks, Abby. And with that, we wrap up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Simply Economics. We'll see you back here tomorrow.